Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 48 and the fourth in our High Holiday series for 5773. So far, Rabbi Shalom has examined the Torah as a manual for life, a historical document, and source for ethical behavior. Now he looks at the literary value of the Torah and its impact on literary creativity of the Jewish people. If you read the Torah, you find that the Hebrew God has an anger management problem. In the days of Noah, the sons of God have children with the daughters of men, polluting the earth, so he wipes out everything with a great flood. He hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he can inflict more suffering on the Egyptians and show how powerful he is to the world. And after the Israelites make a golden calf to worship, he has had enough. He says to Moses, Do you see what your people have done? I'm going to wipe them out and start over. It's like parents when kids misbehave. Do you know what your son said to me? Fortunately, Moses has a degree in divine therapy and talks him down, getting him to admit that his people are worthy because of their ancestors and because of his promises to them. And after all, what will the other nations think if he can't fulfill his own promises? This anger management dynamic in the story could be a major theological problem if we read the story believing that the Hebrew God is the perfect, all-knowing God of the universe. But if Mr. God is a character like Mr. Hamlet or Mr. Zeus, he becomes more human. And the story is even more interesting and relevant to real life. For centuries, Jews have been called the people of the book, and they don't mean librarians. The Torah is the book, read over and over, studied and commented on and explored bit by bit, year after year. The Torah is kept in a special place with an eternal light, dressed ornately like a high priest. One stands when it is seen, one kisses it when it passes, one only touches its cover through intermediaries like a prayer book. If a Torah scroll is dropped, the guilty klutz is supposed to fast for 40 days. He gets the nights off, but 40 days. We are told that Jews are opposed to worshiping idols, but what is all of this but Torahletry? Now, we can find positives in the symbolism. We Jews celebrate the importance of learning and literacy, even if we humanistic Jews have expanded the curriculum. We like that a central symbol of Jewish culture is a book, not a sword. When Kol Hadash opened its offices, one of our first acquisitions were bookshelves, which we have since filled to overflowing. And have you ever tried to throw out or even recycle a damaged book? It's very hard to do. We are heirs to this Jewish transformation from animal sacrifices by hereditary priests to a text that everyone can study, especially in the last few decades since women have been included in everyone. It is ironic, given that hereditary priests probably compiled and edited the Torah for their own purposes. Witness all of the rules that apply only to priests or to high priests, or the genealogies designed to show proper pedigree. You see, for the priests who wrote it, the Torah was a masterstroke to establish them, their certificate, their proof of authority. As I described in Rosh Hashanah, 
this master stroke established the priests in charge of the Jerusalem temple, which worked fine until the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. If the Torah had not been so insistent that there was only one place that the God could be worshipped, they could have relocated, started over. Instead, another Jewish group that celebrated the Torah as the book, not the certificate, they took over. And they set the tone for the next 1,700 years and for us. It was early rabbis who made the Torah an object of general study, and it was early rabbis who created the template for the people of the book and its Torahletry. In the synagogue in which I was raised and where I used to work, the first humanistic congregation built as a humanistic congregation, there was no ark. The Torah scroll was displayed on a stand in the library, which shocked some people and confused other people. When I would give the building tour, I always emphasized that the Torah was non-circulating. <laughs> now, there was a precedent for this architecture. I was told that when Chicago Sinai Congregation, led at the time, at the turn of the last century, by Rabbi Emil Hirsch, one of the most radical reform rabbis in the country, they redesigned their sanctuary, and they as well did not have an ark in the sanctuary. Instead, they took the Sefer Torah, the scroll of the Torah, and locked it up in the office. When the rabbi was asked why they put the Sefer Torah, why they put the Torah scroll into the office, his response was, the Sefer is safer in the safe. <laughs> now, even with a precedent, why take that step to change synagogue tradition so much? I'll explain the reasoning. First and foremost, the Torah does not come from heaven in the traditional phrase, from the mouth of God by the hand of Moses. The Torah, like all books, was written by people and thus belongs with other books. We in humanistic Judaism do not depend on finding our values in the Torah. What we believe and do is true or false because of evidence and effects in the real world. If the Torah agrees, it's wonderful to find our values reflected in our heritage. If the Torah disagrees, we are not torn by a contradiction with human values first expressed 2,500 years ago. Humanistic Jewish identity is more than just religious beliefs and ritual symbols. It is a rich and varied cultural identity, and no one symbol sums up a civilization. Most important, we see ourselves as people of the books, and not only Jewish books. Rabbi Akiva warned that reading the outside books would disqualify a Jew from his share in the world to come. But a library with only one book, or for that matter, an ark of wisdom with only one book, lo dayenu, it would not be enough for us. You could argue it's a promotion to put the Torah scroll in the library. It will be seen more there than hidden away in an ark, and there it is among the books that define who we are. There are, of course, humanistic Jewish arguments for having a Torah in an ark, even if it is an ark with space for other important books, as ours is. The Torah does not need to be true to be powerful as literature, as myth, or to spark ethical discussion. But both sides of this debate agree that the Torah is a book by human authors, and therefore other books by other human authors could also be vitally important to our Jewish culture and our personal philosophy. The Torah as literature, to be frank, is not always great literature. I can imagine an editor's review of the book. 
think you have some issues with consistency. Sometimes your Yahweh God loves the Israelites and sometimes he hates them and they can't stick to anything either. The whole Exodus sequence is too deus ex machina for my tastes and rather implausible. Cut down the sections on leprosy and impurity, all those genealogies that don't go anywhere and cut out the repetitions. We get it. I'm a jealous God, don't worship any other gods, don't even look at any other gods, blah, blah, blah. The legal sections have some interesting potential, but they're way too pushy. How about 10 suggestions instead? <laughs> Finally, ending the book with Moses' death is a real downer. Maybe he comes back for a surprise cameo in the sequel. You may have heard Mark Twain's definition of a classic, something that everyone wants to have read and nobody wants to read. Try and read the Torah from cover to cover. If you travel, there's one in your nightstand. For the best-selling book ever, it bogs down in the middle of Exodus. The true literary power of the Torah as literature is as context, a sense of roots and resonance on its own, eh, with the context of Jewish history and Jewish ethics and the legacy of Jewish literature that it led to, bam. Writers say that your first book is autobiographical. Once that's out of the way, you can get more creative. Can we in Jewish life get past our origin story, our creative autobiography, and find literature worth studying? There's the whole rest of the Bible, the daring do of David and Samson, the philosophy of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the joy of the Song of Songs. There are the complexities of rabbinic literature, at times searching for needles of relevance in haystacks of legal hair-splitting, at other moments fascinating explorations even if you're not a lawyer. In the Middle Ages, we find intriguing Jewish philosophy in Judeo-Arabic and both religious and secular poetry in Hebrew. And modern Jewish creativity in poetry and prose in myriad languages, even in English. This is why our arc is wider. Our high holiday liturgy draws on that wisdom and creativity as well as where it all began. The literary present rests on the foundation of the literary past. Writers respond to what they have read. This is sometimes called intertextuality, a dialogue between the old story and a new story that changes both. When you read a modern poem on Genesis, the original myth informs the poem, but the new poem will change how you read the original the next time. It's interpretation through creativity rather than prose commentary. Just as we can read a Torah passage understanding the historical context that produced it or debate the ethical message it presents, we can also see how its literary motif has been used and reused, formed and transformed through later literature. The Torah can be literature, and it is also the foundation for later Jewish literature. Consider the binding of Isaac. The Akedah, a traditional high holiday narrative chosen to inspire you to the straight and narrow. As we heard last night, it is a powerful story in its own right. A father obeying his God at the risk of his son's life. The story's repetition of father and son heightening the dramatic tension until the hand stretches out and grabs the knife and then the angel stops him at the last moment. The high holiday message of the story if Abraham's faith was strong enough that he was willing to sacrifice his son, what's wrong with you? 
But in the hands of Franz Kafka, the Akedah becomes emblematic of the modern condition. Kafka wrote, I could conceive of another Abraham for myself. He certainly would have never gotten to be a patriarch or even an old clothes dealer who was prepared to satisfy the demand for a sacrifice immediately with the promptness of a waiter, but was unable to bring it off because he just could not get away. Or Kafka envisions still another Abraham, one who wanted to perform the sacrifice altogether in the right way and had a correct sense of the whole affair, but could not believe that he was the one meant. He, an ugly old man and the dirty youngster that was his child, He is afraid that after starting out as Abraham with his son, he would change on the way to Don Quixote. Kierkegaard felt the Akedah exemplified the existential leap of faith. Kafka saw instead the risk of ridicule and isolation, the absurdity of the situation and by extension of life. Another example, Leonard Cohen's song, The Story of Isaac, draws a different lesson telling the story from Isaac's eyes and looking at Cohen's own days during the Vietnam War with his own questions. You who build these altars now to sacrifice these children, you must not do it anymore. A scheme is not a vision. And you have never been tempted by a demon or a god. You who stand above them now, your hatchets blunt and bloody, you were not there before when I lay upon a mountain and my father's hand was trembling with the beauty of the world. And if you call me brother now, forgive me if I inquire, just according to whose plan. When it all comes down to dust, I will kill you if I must. I will help you if I can. When it all comes down to dust, I will help you if I must. I will kill you if I can. And mercy on our uniform, man of peace or man of war, the peacock spreads his fan. The motif goes on. Feminist writers wonder why Mother Sarah was not consulted or why her next mention in the Torah is her death. Holocaust survivors rewrite the story to say the father was killed and the son survived. Philosophers wonder if obedience is truly a supreme virtue. Comedians ask if some people will do anything as long as it is commanded in a deep, resonant, well-modulated voice. Even Christian artists see a father sacrificing his son in their literature as prefigured in this story of Abraham. And they created art called the sacrifice of Isaac, not the binding, the sacrifice of Isaac. All of this is powerful literature in its own right, made even more powerful by its intertextual connections with our earliest writing. Does the original Torah get credit for this later creativity? That's what the rabbis did with Midrash when they creatively imagined inside and around the original stories, but they claimed it was all part of the original revelation. For us, the new writers should get the credit. You could not have a computer without electricity, but we don't credit Thomas Edison for the iPhone. Our arc goes even wider. American Jewish literature from Philip Roth to Nathan Englander or Grace Paley, Israeli writers and poets like Emos Oz and Dali Ravikovich, the list goes on, and the list will be different for each of us. There is no one Jewish canon anymore. 
We may find a shared common ground as a humanistic Jewish community, but each of our libraries, our Kindle contents, our arcs will be different. Each of our libraries tells us something about who we are, about what books we would save, and about what we might call Torah. The written Torah is not history, though real history is part of our Torah. The written Torah does not define ethics, though it can spark and inspire ethical discussion and action. We began by seeing Torah as myth, and we come full circle by celebrating Jewish literature early and modern. Our Torah, in its widest understanding, is not a political document for priests or an unchanging covenant. Our Torah is our teaching, our wisdom, our insight into the human condition. That is the tree of life, for that is life itself. On Yom Kippur, it is said that a book of life is inscribed and sealed. When you wish someone, Tekatevu v'tekatemu, you say, may you be written and may you be inscribed for another year of life. This Yom Kippur, I have a different wish. May you write, may you inscribe, may you create new Judaism with your talents and creativity, your original reading, your understanding. It is not my Torah that waits to be written. It is our Torah, yours and mine. The Shana Tova, a happy and healthy new year to all of you. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening. <laughs>